You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 12th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everyone. Evan, what's our special day today? I couldn't find one. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> oh, special about March. Oh, 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 okay, wait, wait. Okay, New York Governor Elliot Spitzer uh, resigns. No, and no, no. You can't use something that just happened today. Well, well wait, wait. For, for those of our listeners who uh, don't know, who don't live in the United States, the governor of New York got totally busted having sex with $4,000, $5,000 hookers. And he was forced to resign in disgrace. Yeah, in total disgrace. It's a lot of a lot of schadenfreude going on. Is that how yeah, you pronounce anyway, that word? Yeah, anyway, it's got nothing to do with science. But, okay, on this day in history, in 1912, the Girl Guides were founded in the United States. The Girl Guides were later renamed the Girl Scouts of the USA. And that is very related to science because the Girl Scouts happen to have a program specifically aimed at getting girls interested in math and science. Unlike yeah. the Boy Scouts that discriminate against atheists. Exactly. And gay people. Right. <laughs> They are two. They are two completely different organizations. The Mormons control the Boy Scouts, but don't have anything to do with the Girl Scouts. Is that the true? Mormons the Mormons control the Boy Scouts. I didn't know that. That is true. So you should support your local Girl Scout. Well, let's get to some science and skepticism. Yes, news. please. Mm-hmm. A uh, news report from the Telegraph indicates that scientists, quote unquote, see ghosts. Scientists from the University College London have been investigating why so many people report seeing apparitions, boogeymen and phantoms, and they think it has to do with the ambiguous context of looking at things in dimly lit situations or quote-unquote in the shadows, which is like kind of one of those, well, duh. Like you were saying, Steve. You know, duh. I mean, you know, this is this is something we as skeptics obviously have been looking at for a very long time. Why do people see ghosts? What are the conditions that people see the most ghosts in, and so forth? And yes, they're you know dimly lit play, dimly lit areas. Um, you know, photographs with lots of you know vagaries in the background, not well lit, not well defined backgrounds. Uh, all attribute to you know to uh, these ghost sightings. Basically, people are filling in the blanks with their mind, almost a pareidolia sort of thing. You know, they think they see something and they're attributing a face or a body or, you know, a ghost to, mm-hmm. uh, to it, to just fill in the blanks that their mind has to fill in. Right. Now, the actual study they did, you know, it's, pr- it's fairly reductionist. I mean, they, what they, they had uh, subjects looking at a, a computer screen and they e- either did or did not flash a gray uh, rectangle on the screen for 80 milliseconds. And the... Subjects were more likely to report seeing it when it wasn't there if the background was also sort of gray and ambiguous. So they're extrapolating a lot from that fairly narrow bit of data. But it, it probably does you know, relate to what we're talking about. And they also discuss the fact that illusionists understand this and take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. The fact that um, they, they, for example, they mentioned the ball trick, like where they throw balls up in the air and but one time they motion as if they're throwing a ball up in the air but they don't really do that so it makes it seem like there's more ball more balls than there are because they illusionists understand the fact that when you have 
sort of vague stimuli in a certain context, our brain will happily fill in the details and we'll think we see things that we don't. And um, the point that the scientists are making that ghostly phenomenon are probably the same thing, that we're just people filling in the blanks when confronted with a vague or ambiguous stimuli. Don't forget uh, hypnagogic and hypnopopic uh, hallucinations. That's a completely separate you know, neurological phenomenon that they, is not directly tied in with this research. What, you're, what Jay's referring to is the fact that people have a tendency to hallucinate in kind of a, a fusion of the sleep and wake states when either they're just falling asleep or just waking up. That could produce all kinds of very uh, vivid, intense experiences that people confuse for a real waking experience when in fact it's just a dream intruding upon their consciousness. It also could happen pretty much any time during the night, especially if the person has a, you know, has a sleeping disorder where mm-hmm. um, they, they stay very close to, uh, to wake, wakefulness. But I think that has a big, you know, adds a lot, of, a, a lot of relevance to the topic in a way just because oh, yeah. when you see that, you're really seeing something as opposed to a shadow or whatever, you know, it's a totally different reality at that point. You're you are seeing it. You're really seeing it. It's a virtual reality. Yeah, but in a way, everything we see is a virtual reality. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that we think we see is just our brain constructing a virtual, you know, three dimensional representation of the world based upon imperfect data or, or input, and it's doing. It's making a lot of judgments it's doing a lot of processing it's filling in a lot of gaps a lot of assumptions that's what illusions a come lot from. of assumptions absolutely so everything we see is a constructed three-dimensional virtual you know reality and um when the the more ambiguous the stimuli gets the more the brain has to fill in the details and that's so it's all part of the same thing just look at the images that are on your retina i mean your mind turns these tiny postage stamp sized upside down and distorted images that are on your retina and they turn them into this full blown three dimensional reality uh, that we see it's it's people don't realize you know what you see is constructed it's a it's a dynamic process it's not just a passive camera looking at the world your brain is constructing uh, your visual reality and the reason why people see things like faces and people is because, well, those are the things that we've been seeing since we were born. Our, our, our brain is hardwired and, hard and hugely biased towards seeing human faces. Right. So we, while this is a very small slice, this new data, this study they did, is a new slice of this bigger picture, it does feed into what has been well established through multiple independent lines of evidence that uh, you know, we, we can't just believe everything we see. You know, seeing is can often be extremely deceptive, even when we're not hallucinating. Forget about the fact that we can hallucinate and just make up completely fabricated experiences that are indistinguishable to us from something that's quote unquote real. What about the guy that's afraid of his own shadow? <laughs> that actually is a real situation, Jay. I know you're saying that as a joke, but there is a a shadow self phenomenon where people feel like they are constantly being shadowed, that there is somebody always right behind them following them everywhere. We discussed this just a few months ago when they managed to recreate this in a lab by yeah. shutting down a part uh, of yeah, a person's that's right. brain. Yeah, so you could, yeah. You could, we, we figured out how to make it happen, but sometimes people have a stroke or whatever where that part of their, their you know, the, when the brain's constructing its three-dimensional model of here's the world, here's me, I'm in my body, th- that, that uh, gets disconnected and the, 
the brain's image of the self gets somehow disconnected from its uh, sense of self so that it creates this sort of false second image just behind you that you think is sort of just out of your visual field. That's got to be terrifying. Sense that there's man. somebody there. Yeah, people, they, it, it freaks them out. Yeah. Let's go on to the next news item. Uh, we had a lot of email about this. This uh, next story has had a lot of press in t- New York Times, Time Magazine, uh, the Washington Post, the New Scientist. You know, a lot of uh, blogs have been written about it. I've re- I've blogged about it as well as um, David Gorsky on science-based medicine. The the government has settled one of the autism vaccine test cases that are part of the autism omnibus. This, uh, which is about 5,000 families that are suing the vaccine compensation program on the claim that childhood vaccines caused uh, their, their children's autism. A number of test cases have been started to be hear, heard since uh, the summer of 07. This was one of the test cases. That the child's name is Hannah Poling. It's been, been revealed. And the government settled the case and paid is going to be paying the family a rather large sum of money in compensation. Now, the anti-vaccinationists and the so-called mercury militia, those who think that mercury and the preservative thimerosal in, in some childhood vaccines is related to autism, have been exploiting this, arguing that the government, quote-unquote, is admitting that there's a connection between autism and vaccines. And unfortunately, a lot of the press coverage has given that as like the bottom line impression when the the reality is really anything but that. This is actually a very complex case. You know, for the full details, I just you know, will link to the two blog entries that we've written about it. Um, and, and also on my blog entry, there is a rather lively discussion in the comment section. And in fact, the father of Hannah Poling has written a rather lengthy open letter to me in my comments and he's also a neurologist who authored a paper about his daughter's case, which is interesting. And someone asked him why he didn't reveal in the paper his conflict of interest that he was yeah. the subject's father. But that's a separate issue. In any case, so this, here's, the, here's the bottom line with this case. Here's, here's the, the quick summary. This is a, a, a girl who had a lot of ear infections when she was very young. Um, with you know, recurrent bouts of infection and fever, um, she, uh, although was appeared to be neurologically healthy and, and with normal development, and then um, had a series of vaccines. Shortly after those vaccines, she had what could have been an encephalitis, meaning she had a fever and a change of behavior, very irritable, you know, arching her back and being inconsolable. And then from that point forward, had some type of neurodegenerative regression. She you know, began to exhibit symptoms she never had before, losing some of her eye contact and her communicativeness, and you know, basically had some kind of regressive developmental problem with some features of autism. And that's a point also that's been missed. This child did not develop te- typical textbook autism. She developed a complex set of neurological problems, and some of the features do overlap with autism, but actually a lot don't. She also later developed seizures, which has nothing to do with autism. And it was found that she has a mutation 
in a uh, mitochondrial gene. Now, the mitochondria are the energy factory of the cells, and they have their own DNA. Although some of their proteins come from nuclear DNA, they make a lot of their own proteins from their own DNA. And she had a mitochondrial gene mutation. Mutations in this in this gene have been um, linked to mitochondrial disorders, which can cause encephalopathy and a lot of the symptoms that this child has. Although it's it's again, this is a complicated case because it's not clear that this mutation is actually causing any problems in this girl. Her mother has a similar mutation and she's fine. So the mutation could be what we call a polymorphism, meaning it's a mutation that does not cause problems. Basically, it's just a variant. Um, but it could have predisposed her to negative side effects from the vaccine. Again, it's still not clear if whatever problems she has, she would have developed anyway, or if it was the combination of the two, the vaccine, like a rare reaction to the vaccine, plus, you know, this genetic predisposition. Um, There's a lot of unanswered questions here. But given all of the ambiguity and all the unknowns, the government said, okay, there was the, the sequence of events is such that there may have been a rare reaction to the vaccine, you know, playing some role in her neurological disorders. They decided that, quote-unquote, compensation is appropriate. They did not admit anything else. They did not concede that there's any connection in any of the other cases between autism and and mercury or in thimerosal that that had anything to do with this particular case. And, very important, the plaintiff's attorneys agreed to settle this case. As, along with the government. Now, this is a keep in mind, this was a test case. They have fi- about 5,000 cases resting on this. If this were a concession, or if this were a home run case for a broader connection between autism and vaccines, there's no way they would have settled this case, in my opinion. They would have pushed it forward as a test case because, you know, they stand to win 5,000 cases based upon it. By settling it, they removed it as a test case. So hmm. while the other side is trying to say this is an admission by the government that there's a connection, which it isn't, it's actually more of an admission by the attorneys that this is not a good case for them to be a test case because they agreed to settle it as an individual case. But this has now just reignited this controversy. You know, I've heard from a lot of people. It's like, hey, I heard there's a connection between autism and vaccines now. The quote unquote they are saying so. Unfortunately, the you know the bottom line that's filtering out to the public uh, is is not really accurate. All the sort of complexity of the, case, of the case are being lost, and it's just another way of stoking the fears that there's something tainted or dangerous, you know, about vaccines. That, that it, there's some connection between vaccines and autism, uh, when in fact this is just a rare, very uh, idiosyncratic, you know, unique case that that. You know, we cannot make broader um, conclusions about sloppy journalism at work. Yeah, although some, you know, I have to say, some of the journalists uh, did do a good job. The New Scientist did a good job. Of course, I'll say that they interviewed me for that. I also got interviewed by the Washington Post. So, I mean, there, was, so there were a lot of science journalists who were trying to get the facts right, and I think did a pretty good job on reporting it. Uh, although a lot didn't, but it's just you know, I think a lot of the complexity gets lost under the headlines, you know, and the headlines unfortunately get, convey this. Um, misperception that the government was conceding some connection. Yeah, and in this case, it's 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 much worse than when the media misrepresents, like um, psychics or or ghost hunters or something like that. It's it's never a good thing. But I feel like the anti-vaccination crowd is probably one of the most dangerous ones mm-hmm. out there, um, and it's so easy just to to feed them more misinformation and make it so much worse. 
and they, and they have celebrities backing those positions. I mean, it took it took yeah. me a while to like really wrap my mind around the details of this case and to try to understand the implications of the mutation versus the reaction that she had to this vaccine. And um, so I don't, you know, blame journalists and the public for having a hard time doing that. But it's just unfortunate there's this dedicated group out there or groups actually working together to just generate fear and, mis- and misinformation. It's just it's a lot easier. You know, it's a lot easier to generate misinformation than to you know, carefully explain what this all really means. Well, shouldn't the government have anticipated this? You know, they've been terrible in anticipating this. And again, even if they did, it's like, you know, are you going to punish this girl because some jerks are going to misuse the information? No, just uh, make her win the lotto or something, some surreptitious little thing. No, Bob, I tell you, if you try to hide it surreptitiously, <laughs> then it yeah, comes serious. I know you're being facetious, but no, if you try to do anything below the table when it comes to light, then that justifies every conspiracy theory they've been you know, generating for, yeah, for decades, right? It's worse. So you always have to be totally upfront about all of this. But the government has been fairly hapless in managing you know, the, uh, the anti-vaccinationists. They just are not savvy in, in dealing with this crowd, unfortunately. Well, the next news item uh, has to do with a real-life Death Star. Bob, you sent me this piece. Ooh. I love the title for this news story. Real Death Star could strike Earth. Of course, they're referring to the, to the moon-sized <laughs> planet killer from the movie Star Wars. Rebecca, you got that, right? Mm-mm. Let's check it. Of course it. I got that. Come okay. on. <laughs> right. Okay, here we go again. Another way for the Earth to be destroyed. In 1999, astronomer Peter Tuthill and his colleagues at the University of Sydney discovered a new stellar phenomena, a so-called spiral or pinwheel nebula. Each pinwheel nebula is actually it's a binary star system in a tight orbit around each other. And these are, these are massive stars that have pretty much already gone through all of their, all of their hydrogen. They've got these uh, big helium cores. They, they're blowing out. They've blown out a lot of their... Uh, a lot of their outer atmospheres and their solar winds from the two different stars interact and they create these beautiful spiral patterns, some of them hundreds of times the diameter of, our, of Earth's orbit. They're, they're really pretty, but they're very rare. There's only a, handful, only a handful of these are known in the galaxy. But of course, they have a dark side. Otherwise, I really wouldn't be talking about them. Um, one binary system known as WR-104, actually the first one that was discovered in 1999 by Tuthill, and his buddies. This this uh, this system here is um, is at a stage. One of the stars in this system is at a stage right before it goes supernova, and uh, right before, of course, means it could go any time in the next three hundred thousand years if it already if it already hasn't. And uh, since it's eight since it's um, eight thousand light years away, it could have gone it could have gone seven seven thousand years ago, and we wouldn't even know it, or even more. Yeah. So big deal, big deal, right? Even a mighty supernova at 8,000 light years would just be a pretty light show, nothing more. That is correct. A supernova would have to be at about 25 light years to cause concern, depending on the size of it. Uh, the supernova, though, can be a big deal if it's really a hypernova. Dum, 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 dum. What's that? Is that where hyper- Emperor Palpatine comes into it? Right. You got it. Hypernovas <laughs> yes. are supernovas that produce devastating gamma ray bursts. You uh, gamma ray bursts. That's what in, made in the, the hawk. Newsla- That's yes, you're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, I know. I know my nerd culture. And the Fantastic Four, right? Didn't the? F- yep, you're right, Steve. <laughs> Fantastic Four with gamma ray burst products. That you is correct. Right. Peter true. Tuthill said that I used to appreciate this spiral just for its beautiful form, but now I can't help. 
a twinge of feeling that it's uncannily like looking down a rifle barrel. Now, gamma rays, of course, are part of the electromagnetic spectrum, along with X-rays and radio waves and visible light, etc. They are the most energetic of all EM radiation and can go through an inch of lead. So gamma rays are nasty. A gamma ray burst refers to the most powerful explosions that that occur in the universe. They can contain all the energy released by our sun in its 10 billion year lifetime in an explosion that lasts from milliseconds to minutes. So you're talking a gargantuan amount of energy. Uh, It's it's an amazing thing. They were were a mystery for years. Uh, We realize now that they're most likely produced by colliding neutron stars or a neutron star colliding with a black hole or by uh, this class of supernova known as hypernovas. According to Adrian Mellet of University of Kansas in Lawrence, he says that this is the first object that we know of that might release a gamma ray burst at us. So um, basically the axis of rotation is pretty much right within just like 6 to 10 degrees of us. So it is kind of like looking down a rifle barrel. So how bad could it be? Well, it, w- it wouldn't fry the ground or anything. It would The atmosphere would actually absorb most of it, but it would decimate about 25% of our ozone layer. Oh. That's bad. The polar Yikes. holes, we've all heard of the holes at the, in, at the poles. Uh, they're just 2 or 3% depleted. A 25% depletion would be very, very nasty indeed. Uh, the uh, UV rays would wreak havoc on things like, oh, you know, DNA and stuff. Uh, what would we see? We'd see extinctions, most likely. Maybe food chain collapses in the oceans. Agricultural crises, of course, with starvation. You know, on the bright side, though, we wouldn't get any more emails about global warming. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, we could all, it could also trigger smog formation that could blot out the sun and rain smog. and acid. Well, the smog and acid rain, so that's, that's pretty nasty. Also, it gets even worse cosmic rays we're not sure about cosmic rays and gamma ray bursts we're not sure um how bad the cosmic rays would be uh that accompany the burst of gamma rays so cosmic rays like protons and electrons and other charged particles that would be truly nasty that would be like a nuke going off everywhere on the side of the earth that gets hit by by the uh the gamma ray burst cosmic rays so half the planet would be completely irradiated but the other half would be okay. Uh, no. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. But it, <laughs> no. Oh, good. It's, it's, it's a chance. synergistic effect, though. The, uh, the, the cosmic rays would... Uh, Can't nuke. I mean, make... what would it do with the uh, ocean, you know? It's, come on. It would, that's it. That's end game. Also, right check there, this boys. out. I, I, saw a, um, I saw a really cool graphic on the Discovery Channel about a gamma ray burst hitting the Earth. It's like this huge laser beam, um, as big as a continent hitting the Earth. But actually, the beam width was surprising. Some scientists have estimated at several hundred square light years wide. Yeah. So it, this thing is basically, there's no getting away from it um, if it's coming your way. Uh, scientists believe that a gamma ray burst will occur every few million years in the Milky Way and in fact may occur once every several hundred million years within a few thousand light years of Earth. In fact, some people believe that the Ordovician extinction 450 million years ago was caused by a gamma ray burst. Still, I wouldn't lose sleep over this. This star might not go hypernova at all. Uh, even if it does, the beam doesn't, isn't necessarily going to hit us. I mean, imagine what a sure shot you'd have to be to hit us from 8,000 light years away, even if the beam was that wide. So, it, it well, yeah, Has just, anyone calculated the odds, Bob? Uh, they, I think they need to refine their calculations. To, uh, they need to know more about it, basically. But it might pass by us, and even if it doesn't pass by us, 
and it goes off and might not happen for hundreds of thousands of years. So there's other mm-hmm. things you should be sweating besides So, this. Bob, if it went off right now, how long would it take to get here? 8,000 years. 8,000 years. It's 8,000 light years away. The gamma rays travel at the speed of light, of course, and the cosmic rays travel just under the speed of light. So but the key would, is it, it could have happened 7,999 years ago. Yeah, we yeah. don't know it. That's true. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm not going to worry about this one. I'll, just, nah, you know, I'll worry things. about sharks no. and stuff, but not that. <laughs> sharks, sharks with laser beams. <laughs> with laser. <laughs> Bumblebees kill more people than sharks. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's true. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. Surely. Uh, the next news item, this is another one that's been all over the news. Oh, yeah. Pharmaceuticals in the drinking water. It's always <gasps> good for headlines when you have nasty stuff in our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> This was a study that was actually done by the Associated Press, which is kind of odd. Uh, They looked at, but they were really just gathering data of uh, those cities uh, that have tested their drinking water for pharmaceuticals, and they found that drugs had been detected in the water supplies of 24 major metropolitan areas, supplying water to about 41 million Americans. Uh, this wasn't a complete survey, so the number is probably much higher, the number of, of people that you know, might have pharmaceuticals in the water. Now, the amounts that we're talking about are trace, quote-unquote trace amounts. You know, how they get there is pretty clear. You know, people take drugs, and they don't completely metabolize them, um, and a lot of drugs get excreted in the urine or even in the feces, and then just gets, that gets passed into the waste system, which gets recycled into the, the water system, and um, it doesn't, it's incompletely filtered out in the, in the water processing. That's uh, so gross. I'm never yeah. drinking water again. Yeah. Also, you know, there's also drugs used in um, certain industries, like in farming, et cetera, or, or in, uh, with cattle. And also, some people, when they're done with their medications, flush them down the toilet. When they should be selling them on the street. Yeah, Come really. on, people. Come on. It's just makes sense. Yeah. Technically, you should be bringing them back to your physician or the pharmacist. But who oh, the hell up, does that, Steve? Proper, <laughs> proper disposal. Do you think this means that there's actually more active ingredients in regular tap water than in any homeopathic remedy on the market right I now? I do. I do. <laughs> but also, wouldn't this invalidate any homeopathic remedy because you have all these other substances, pharmacologically active well, substances, they, diluted they in the water? they purify it, don't they? Uh-huh. Don't they purify their water first, though? I don't know. So really, I think they probably do get rid of all of the uh, the pharmaceuticals that are actually in the water. I don't know if, well, if the process they use, though, would do that, would accomplish that. Not that it all matters, because homeopathy <laughs> is all fantasy land anyway. Uh-huh. But Oh, right. So the the the, uh, the question though that I have is that you know what effect could trace amounts of pharmaceuticals have you know if these are obviously much smaller than the biologically active doses that we would use depends on the know, weed pharma- man pharmacologically well that that's a little disturbing Steve because that's the same question I had and I was going to ask you because you're a doctor yeah I mean, I mean <laughs> it's the ob- it's the obvious question are these trace amounts safe or not you know. My sense is that they're, that in trace amounts that they would not be pharmacologically active. They wouldn't have any significant effect. It's always hard to prove a negative, right, to say that there's no effect. You could only set limits on how big an effect that there could be. Now, the mm-hmm. AP is reporting that tiny amounts of pharmaceuticals in recent studies they report has, quote-unquote, been found to have alarming effects on human cells and wildlife. 
but they didn't reference what they were talking about in, in their article. So I don't know what that means. And I've said, I'm pretty sure I've said this before in other contexts. When you're doing basic science research and we're on cells in a Petri dish where you're basically dumping chemicals on top of cells, that's actually not a really good way to determine what would happen in a, in a biological system. Like, for example, we have a, uh, a system, the portal system, where when, when you consume things like drugs, it gets a first pass through the liver. It's absorbed in the gut. The, the blood from the GI system goes through the liver before it goes to the rest of the body, and that's designed to do things like detoxify the blood before it gets to the rest of the body. So just because in a Petri dish there are effects from, from uh, these tiny amounts, it doesn't mean that it would have any biological effect in the body. It just get, probably just get filtered out. So it's unclear that this, uh, these trace amounts of pharmaceuticals are having any untoward effects, and I think that the, whatever research they were vaguely referring to in the article it doesn't really answer the question. And I, I suspect, just from you know, what else is known, that um, trace amounts of pharmaceuticals don't really pose a health risk to, uh, to the public. But you know, certainly it's something that should be you know, more extensively studied, um, and it, it may indicate the need to um, you know rethink our you know water purification system uh, to to test and filter out more pharmaceuticals. I mean, certainly, if we could get rid of them, that'd be better than 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 not doing that. But is anybody drinking water that's poisoning them or doing any, doing anything bad in any way? Well, there's no evidence that that's the case. I mean, the the AP article is suggesting that maybe that is the case, but the, but they don't they really haven't established that. It was more of just raising the issue. You know, we're not really testing for this. You know, uh, water companies are not required to test for it, and maybe we should be. Okay. And wouldn't it have been more responsible of AP to talk about the other things that are in the water, such as minerals, dirt, sharks, other trace things that are not. Pharmaceuticals. There's all kinds of things in the water. I mean, yeah, right. There's also there is there are all kinds of contaminants in the water. They, they sort of set it up, I think, in a false kind of way to assume that you know the water you should be getting is just hydrogen and oxygen, and that's all that's in your water. Well, that's not true. There's, there's lots of stuff in the water, and sure, uh, some pharmaceutical traces are in there, but there's also a bunch of other things in there too. Yeah, there's probably everything in there. I mean, if you look for anything, you'll probably find trace amounts of it. You know, pretty much like uh, like if you are in a hospital, I know like there was a study, for example, where they just looked at dust in the corner, you know, of the hallways in the hospital. And yeah, they were loaded with antibiotics and other pretty much every drug that is given in the hospital. In the in the dust, things in the environment will pick up trace amounts of pretty much any chemicals that are in the environment. That's just the way it is. Uh, but toxicity and you know and pharmacological activity is always about dose. Everything is is always determined by dose. So um, it's simply not possible to have an environment or drinking water or anything else that is 100% free of you know, the chemicals that are a part of our modern society and also that occur in nature. It's not like there were no chemicals prior to modern you know, science or in industry. Every, you know, plants and everything are all loaded with chemicals too. And the fact that they're quote-unquote natural doesn't make them magically safe for humans. You know, you, you don't want to know the stuff that you've consumed in your lifetime. You know, all kinds of nasty stuff gets in the food and the water and everything that we consume. And they're just below our detection and our awareness. And, the, and most of the time, you just shouldn't worry about it because it's just in too small amounts to be concerned about. Yep. 
I agree. Fear-mongering. I totally agree. Uh, One more quick news item. There is a new television show pilot that is uh, in the planning. This is the show is called The Skeptologist. That sounds lame. Who would want to be on that? Yeah, really, seriously. And it's uh, being co-produced by Brian Dunning, who does the Skeptoid uh, podcast, who we interviewed several weeks ago or a couple of months ago mm-hmm. now. The, the concept of the show is that it's going to be like all those paranormal hunting shows, but this is going to have actual skeptics. We're going to actually do real scientific investigations of these you know, paranormal and pseudoscientific topics. You know, it is being produced just as a as a pilot, so it's not clear yet if it's going to get picked up. But the the cast includes uh several names that you will recognize. Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, will be on the cast. Yay. Uh, the cast also Joey. includes Michael Shermer from Skeptic Society. And the cast also includes Dr. Kirsten Sanford, who has a PhD in physiology uh, from the UC Davis. She's best known for her Sexy Geek nomination from Wired Magazine in 2007. And Mark Edward, who is a professional mentalist, and they managed to rope in a skeptical physician on the cast. Some sucker, no doubt. Some sucker. I actually, I I declined about three or four times, uh, but then eventually I caved and agreed to be on the show as they well. Begged. They begged. They did. Threw they money. did. They had to come back to me three times. What was that, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. They threw money at him. Like <laughs> uh, so it should be a lot of fun. I'm not at liberty to give more details at this point in time. It's still a work in progress, but uh, we will be doing the photography in April. Well, that's cool, Steve. Yeah, it should be, it should be a lot of fun to do, and I think that's that awesome. uh, you know, it has the potential of being a really great skepti- you know, hardcore you know, scientific skeptical show, and we just have to see how far it goes. You know? Definitely. Good luck. Skeptical luck. Right. Well, let's go on to our interview. Joining us now is Ola Fink. Ola, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks. Ola is a member of the Oklahomans for Excellence in Science Education. She's also a professor and evolutionary ecologist in the Department of Zoology at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, Ola, we asked you to talk with us this evening about a uh, a bill that has uh, passed the House Education Committee in Oklahoma. Uh, can you tell us about that? Well, it's um, yes, it's House Bill 2211, and it's one a similar one has been put up in other in other states, and it's one that is really, I think, an excuse to to undermine science education in the state of Oklahoma. The bill is about um, it's, it's entitled Religious Viewpoints Anti Discrimination Act, and it basically. It's a rather hard bill to understand, but it basically says that school districts um, have to treat the voluntary expression by a student of a religious viewpoint on an otherwise permissible subject in the same manner that they would treat the expression of a sexual, secular viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it, that may just, you know, to a, a nice person, you they, they might not object to that. But when you think about what that means, if you are say a science teacher, particularly a biology teacher and somebody like me who isn't who teaches evolutionary um, ecology and, and evolution at the undergraduate level, 
I think you can see that you could get into real problems if, say, a student answered a particular question on an evolution exam and basically just said, you know, I'm, I believe in creationism and mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> that's, that's the answer. Right. I mean, I, I think it, this is the kind of bill that would open up educators to lawsuits and, and vice versa and then the school district to lawsuits. I think it's a horrible bill. Yeah, so if a student gave as the, as the answer to a question on a science test that the Earth is 6,000 years old, because that's their religious view, they couldn't be marked wrong for that answer. That would be my understanding. And I, I suppose the organizer, you know, the proponents of the bill would say, oh, no, that's not what we mean. But it's certainly not clear, given the wording of the bill, that one couldn't uh, say that. But couldn't couldn't you phrase the question in such a way... You could say something like, according to evolutionary theory, explain this process, or according to this, according to this. Yeah, but should we have to? <laughs> no, we shouldn't have to do that. Take our test twice as long, and in fact, it wouldn't be just in, according to evolutionary theory. Something like the age of the Earth is not according to a theory, really. I mean, it's, we would right. consider that a fact, a geological fact, and if somebody doesn't want to accept that fact... Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, I, I doesn't want to learn that fact, then, then they should be marked down. But I think this bill just opens, opens it up to several interpretations. And, you know, I mean, uh, on, uh, you could, you could, you can talk about evolution as fact. Evolution is a theory, but as we define evolution as a change in gene frequency over time, and in that sense, evolution is a fact that you really can't argue with. And mm -hmm. so again, if right. someone didn't want to accept that fact and, and said, well, that, that's against my religion, to, I, I don't know. I think it would just open up a can of worms. Right. But I mean, it seems that the law then is unnecessary because it's obvious that in a science classroom, you're asking about scientific facts and, and the current, currently accepted scientific, um, you know, beliefs and they, are by definition, you know, neutral with regard to any other belief system, right? Right. I wouldn't even call it a belief system. I mean, we you accept science. You either accept it or you reject it based on the evidence. So it's not really a belief system. But yeah, I agree. I, mean, I agree with that. I didn't mean to imply that it was a belief right. system. But I mean, just it's a right. system so, of knowledge, and that if someone's if it conflicts with someone's religious belief, it doesn't. It, it is neutral to belief. It's neutral to belief, right? So, and here's an example. Um, about five years ago, there was a professor at Texas Tech University, uh, Professor Michael Dinney, who was uh, under investigation because he refused to give a letter of recommendation to any student who did not profess to believe in evolution. Right, I, I... Remember that case? And the solution actually was, I think, perfectly reasonable, which said, okay, I just want the students to demonstrate that they understand the theory of evolution. They don't have to profess to believe in it. And that's kind of the same solution in this kind of situation where, you know, you don't have to abandon your religious beliefs, you don't even have to necessarily believe the conclusions of science, you just have to demonstrate that you understand them. And if you're being asked in a science classroom what the scientific answer to a question is, that's what you should give. You shouldn't be able to substitute your religious belief for a scientific answer. Right. And and as I say, the way the bill is worded, a proponent might say, well, we're not asking you to accept religion as the answer on an evolution mm -hmm. test. 
But I just think it's... Um, but if not, then what's the purpose of it? Yeah, well, you hit it on the head. <laughs> yeah, and it, is the sense, you know, there that this is a backdoor mechanism for getting creationism into the schools? Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. These kinds of bills come up every year. And I wish taxpayers would understand how much money is wasted indirectly by, by you know, confronting these bills and... Mm-hmm eating them every year. As I said, you know, I'm not retired. I have I have courses to teach. I have research to do. But when we have to take time out to address these kinds of issues, it's actually cutting into <laughs> my time um, and what I'm supposed to do at OU. Mm-hmm. It's it's career related and so I'm and I'm defending science, so I mean it's legitimate. But it's um, it's a waste of time and money. And it comes up every single time. And the other thing is, uh, it comes up in multiple states, and it's it's basically the same bills come up. Um, and so they're not even, you know, it's basically plagiarism. It's, mm-hmm. They're not original to um, the people that propose them. Right. This is identical, in fact, to a bill passed in Texas a year ago. Right. And Oklahoma should at least wait and see how it plays out in Texas, <laughs> how much right. money is spent um, as a result of that bill in terms of lawsuits. And yeah, it's it's totally unnecessary. I mean, I'm not aware of, you know, religious discrimination at OU, for example, or in the public schools. And I don't even think that the proposers of the bill have brought up examples of why this is needed. They they basically said, you know, it it, it could happen. <laughs> right. So it's a non problem. It's a non-problem, and so you have to ask yourself, why are they doing it? Well, and then you look at who proposes them, and it's the same people year after year that propose these kinds of things, mm-hmm. and um, it's very transparent what the, what the reason is. Yeah, but there does need to be groups like yours that are, that are vigilant about it, because if, you know, the moment you turn your backs, there'll be some, these crackpots will come up and try to, and try to pass these stealth laws you know, oh, in the dead yeah. of night. With, with these ulterior motives. Right, and and that's why I'm very grateful for people like Dick Hutchinson who has the time and and energy to be vigilant on this and alert people like me who don't have the time to, to look into everything. And he runs your group, just for for our listeners, the, uh, Mr. Hutchinson. Vic runs the listserv, mm-hmm. the evolution listserv, and it um, goes out to lots and lots of people in the state and educators, and, and it's a huge um, help. But, yeah, we have to be vigilant. Um, and I guess the other problem, the real, one of the real problems is that increasingly the public is, I think, has been confounded and confused on issues regarding evolution, mm-hmm. such that members of the lay public don't understand what a theory is. They don't understand the difference between theory and the law. You know, the past governor of the state of Oklahoma just, you know, was kind of, trying to be neutral, but said, after all, evolution is just a theory. It's yeah. not a law. Well, it will never become a law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, quantum mechanics is just a theory. All science is just a theory. Right. Um, and, and that is as good as it will get. And I think for that reason, increasingly the public is becoming um, less and less literate on matters of science. And I guess that makes it even more important for groups like the Oklahoma for Excellence in Science Education to be out there. But mm-hmm. it's discouraging to me. But yeah. 
And, and your state has been somewhat on the front lines of the creation, evolution, political controversy. Again, there's no scientific controversy. But um, haven't been, there been efforts in, in your state to insert intelligent design or creationism in the public schools? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the most blatant and, and the closest that they got to doing that had to do with that textbook disclaimer. Yeah. And, and yeah. fortunately, that failed in the end. But... Yeah, it's, they won't let up. And I think the current, and now you can, in this bill, this, this reflects the current evolution of their fight, if you like. Right. Um, in that they, I think they're, since the, um, the Dover ruling, I think efforts to get ID into the schools, you know, on par with evolution are, are kind of bleak. But they can go this other route, which is basically to just let people have their say, let them express their religious ideas and, and, and get it in that way. And if nothing else, make the teaching of evolution so controversial and politically difficult that people just stop doing it because it's more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm protected. Being at, at, at a university, teaching at a university level, is much less problematic than if you were a high school teacher in this state or if you were an evolutionary, excuse me, an elementary teacher wanting to talk about science. Um, at that level, I think it's, it's, it's much more difficult to um, really teach evolution if, if you have any parental um, objection or you, you know, you have pressure in some of these school districts not to. I think it's just easier not to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I'm not at all fearful about right. that. But right. I, I do know that it's an issue among high school teachers. The other thing that we do, uh, Dick Hutchinson and, um, Another retired professor at OU, Frank Sonleitner, have organized a teacher's workshop on evolution every year at the biological station, and I participate in that. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk to teachers um, and hear their stories about, you know, problems with teaching evolution, and you're right. Well, th- well, two things are at work. First, if there's a lot of resistance and you've got a lot of pressure from parents, um, it's easier not to, not to deal with anything that's controversial. And secondly... I think teachers themselves, a lot of them may not have um, a good background in evolutionary theory simply because, you know, it wasn't taught in their high school. Right. And and it's not required to teach uh, biology in the state of Oklahoma. In fact, evolution isn't even mentioned in the state science standards. Wow. And so, again, if you're not totally comfortable with the subject, you know, and there's any, there's some public resistance against doing it, it's easy not to do it. I don't blame high school teachers. Now, there's some, uh, there's still an opportunity to stop this bill because it's still, it's now going to go before the Senate Education Committee, is that correct? Yes, yes. So we're hoping it will die in that committee. Um, but some can, can go forward, even three bills can go out of there, um, even if they reject them. So we still don't know what the fate of this is going to be. Hopefully it will fail. Right, and, and we will link to your website, and on there you have the email of um, the Senate Education Committee members, where anyone could email them to express, you know, their their opinions about this bill. And and in in, in other states in the past, it actually has been quite successful when countrywide public attention focuses on a state that's about to do something horrendously anti-scientific. And, and it has in the past embarrassed them out of doing things like this. So that seems to be the strategy that you're going with here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah, that is probably the best strategy. But I, I find it kind of horrific that Texas passed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I mean, I guess I, I like to Texas is, I mean, you know, it's home to the University of Texas at Austin. I mean, they, it, they have uh, a lot of uh, prestige in that state with regards to science institutions, and yet it passed there. Yeah, well, Texas is definitely shaping up to be a problem. The governor yes. is, you know, on record as being a creationist, and he's, you know, fired the, I can't remember exactly the exact position, but somebody in the, uh, uh, on the education board just because they were they were pro evolution. So yes, no, no, no. They fired her. Well, she she got fired. She uh, I think resigned basically. Right. But uh, she was under pressure simply because she emailed right. colleagues that uh, Barbara Forrest was speaking. Right. Barbara Forrest was the author of um, uh, the idea, a book about the history of intelligent design. Right. Of course. She didn't do anything except email, and she got reprimanded for not being neutral. Right, neutral with regard to evolution. Yeah, yeah, as if intelligent design is a neutral issue or on par with evolution. Right. Yeah, so it was a total scandal, and it's it's definitely clear where the political powers in Texas are headed. Yeah, but I mean, it's 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 terrifying to me to mm-hmm. think that they went that route, and I hope. You know, I hope they have lots of problems with, <laughs> with the bill that they passed. Yeah, well, I think you know, ridicule and scorn is a good method to counter some of this. Cause it's deserving, and I think that it has worked in the past. And that's part again. It's why your group, I think, is important. It's also why you know we, we discuss these issues. And you know, we'll, again, we'll give the link to our listeners so they could barrage them with emails and uh, let them know that they can't do these things under the stealth of night and get away with it, basically. Right. Well, yeah, and and politicians are, I think, responsive to a response mm-hmm. from you know, their constituents. So uh, every time these bills come up, I mean, it's just kind of automatic. I have an automatic letter almost. Right. So hopefully it won't pass, but it will be up again. Yeah. Yeah, these things never go away. Something like it will be up again. I don't know where it's ever going to end. Right. Well, thank you for you know the work that you're doing in your group, and thanks for talking to us about this important issue. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks for doing this work. <laughs> okay, take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now, Randy Speaks. Randy, you've had some dealings with Gary Schwartz of the afterlife experiments in the past. Can you tell us about them? First of all, you've got to say Dr. Gary Schwartz. He's very, very heavy on that. Uh, he's, a, he's a Harvard graduate, cum laude, and he reminds everybody of this. Immediately, he'll, he'll meet people at a party, I'm told, and say, Hi, I'm Dr. Gary Schwartz, PhD, uh, educated at Harvard, cum laude, you know. Uh, now, that might be an exaggeration, but not much. He wants to remind people that he graduated very high in his class. He was cum laude. Now, that, you would think, might make him smart. But education, as I've said in the past, only makes you educated. It doesn't necessarily make you smart. So Gary Schwartz, uh, who is at the University of Arizona, and uh, I, I think a bit of an embarrassment to some of the cast of characters that are there, uh, Gary Schwartz uh, has been doing these afterlife experiments. He tested um, John Edward, and of course, uh, he was completely buffaloed by Edward. He fell for the whole thing because he allowed himself to fall for it. Uh, he thinks he's much smarter than he actually is. Now, there's actually something I put up on my webpage, as a matter of fact, uh, and you can you can do a search for that and find it, where uh, Schwartz <laughs> said that he, he had 
he, in the laboratory, he had isolated uh, John Edward, the so-called psychic who talks to dead people and such. He had isolated him from the subject who was sitting in another place. Well, it turns out they were a few feet apart, and there was one of these hospital partitions, you know, the thing with the thin gauze on it, was in between <laughs> the two parties. And I had a picture that I ran on my webpage, taken, a frame taken from some video, with Schwartz standing right there looking at Edward, and Edward with all the electrodes over his head and such, because what they do is they always over-instrument this. The electrodes on your head doesn't make any difference whether or not you're cheating, of course. But... What he's doing is he's leaning forward and peeking through the gap in the curtain. So he sees the person sitting on the other side. Uh, and this is supposed to be isolation? This is what Schwartz calls isolation. I can't believe that he really meant that, that it was blinded in such a way that uh, John Edward wouldn't know who's on the other side of the curtain. But when you peek through the curtain, you see. Uh, Randy, have you ever had any direct personal dealing with Dr. Gary Schwartz? Oh, yes. He and his assistant, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, came down uh, to the, the JRF, the James Randi Educational Foundation, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and uh, went into the library, and I uh, outlined a uh, protocol, a suggested protocol for testing John Edward, which was about to take place, apparently. And uh, Schwartz waxed rhapsodic. He actually was striding up and down, waving his hands around the air and saying, Wow, oh, that's a wonderful, that's a very tight protocol. That's ideal. Oh, I'm very happy. Oh, that's wonderful. So I gave it to him in written form, and uh, he went away with it. And he said, by the way, before he went, I said, I'm willing to work on the protocol for you. That's, uh, you know, that's a service of the James Randi Educational Foundation. That's what we do. But uh, I would appreciate if you'd agree to send me all of the raw data as soon as it's developed so that I can look it over. Oh, of course, of course, he agreed to do that. Well, I never heard from Schwartz again. He went away and he confronted John Edward. John Edward wouldn't do the test the way I had outlined it. He decided to do it his own way. Now, this is like the, the rats in the, in the maze, uh, constructing the maze themselves so they'd know their way around, you see. Uh, the animals, the experimental animals, are conducting, designing and conducting the test themselves, which is not science, but apparently uh, Gary Schwartz doesn't know about that. So he allowed uh, Edward to get away with it, to peek through the curtain, to do the whole thing, do anything he wanted to do, as long as he, Schwartz, could get some positive results out of it. And he did get positive results. That is, he got results that he felt were positive. So that was my contact with Gary Schwartz. Not very satisfactory. Well, Randy, thanks for talking with us. A pleasure. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake, and then I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you all ready? See, si, senor. Yes. Begin. Bob did a very good job of filling in last week, Thank you. Uh, but I'm back to doing it again this week. Because you, you know, Bob, it was pretty it good, was. man. That was good. Bob did a good job. I'm going to have to do it more often. Okay. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered grains of sand around distant stars. Item number two, scientists have discovered that within the Earth's inner core is yet another layer, an inner inner core. And item number three, contrary to the theory of island dwarfism, paleontologists have uncovered on the island of Micronesia fossils of prehistoric humans averaging over six feet tall. 
Bob, why don't you go first this week? Okay. One, astronomers have discovered grains of sand around distant stars. Sounds plausible. Sand is just uh, silicon, mostly. So I don't have a problem with that one. Number two, an inner inner core. Interesting. Surprised I didn't see anything on that. That's pretty dramatic. An inner inner core. Hmm. And then the whole island dwarfism thing. Um, fossils of prehistoric humans averaging prehistoric over six feet. That's what he said. Oh, oh man. Hmm. I'm going to say that um, the six-foot prehistoric, dude, could they be relatives of Gigantopithecus? Don't laugh, Jay. That's a real, that's a real term. Nah, come on, Bob. Stop wasting time, Bob. All right, I think you're trying to you get me on the inner core one. So I'm going to say that the six-foot-tall prehistoric humans is fiction. Okay, Jay. Well, in my limited knowledge of cosmology, I can't think of any way that they could see grains of sand around distant stars. I can't imagine how. I'm sure that there's a way, but I don't know. That one seems kind of like single grains of sand, Steve, right? You're not saying like, Billions of grains of sand clumped together, like one grain of sand is floating around a star. <laughs> Self quiet. Steve, are you okay? <laughs> you want to read it again? Okay, then I'll move on. <laughs> the Earth's inner core is yet another layer or any inner... Yeah, that's, that's totally plausible. I'm sure that they've come up with better instrumentation and stuff and seismology or whatever the hell. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh... And the the whole thing with the island dwarfism situation and the six feet tall people on the island and everything, I just don't believe in ancient uh, and big people. So that that was a fake. Okay, Evan? <laughs> Grains of sand around distant stars. Sure, sand is just very small rocks, as I saw in a movie once. So I think that's entirely plausible. And I think it is billions, if not trillions, or quadrillions, or quintillion, quant- as far as the quantity of the grains of sand. So... Plausible. And then the inner, inner core? Sure. Maybe there's even an inner, inner, inner core. They just haven't discovered it yet, but why not? And then six feet tall prehistoric humans? Yeah, that's, I think the six feet tall is the, is the problem there with that one. They probably found something there, but not six feet tall. So I'll agree with the other fellas. That's, okay. that's fiction. All right, Rebecca? I'll agree. It's called Micronesia, not Macronesia, Steve. Don't be so obvious. That's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, so you guys all agree that astronomers find grains of sand around distant stars, although Jay had a little bit of a confusion there about what that meant. And that one is science. Yay. So answer my question now. Uh, yeah, of course it's not a single grain of sand. <laughs> what do you mean, of course? <laughs> I mean, come on. What do you mean, of course? Why, a co- why of course? That's the whole point to this game. Because it's around a star, you dummy. You can't see that. (laughs) You said discovered grains of sand around distant stars. That sounds like pieces of sand around the stars. Yes. Yes, these are very small pieces of sand. But there's more than one of them. There's just a lot of them. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a cloud of of sand. Was it really that obvious? I mean... That it wasn't a single grain of sand? Or, you know... Uh, Yes. Okay, well, how about this? Let's have some people write in, and they can tell us if they thought that that was obvious or implied in any way. So the stars in question are 2,400 light years from the Earth in the Cone Nebula. 
And they are very young, only about 3 million years old. So this is a very new star system. You mean young compared to you. Uh, and because of the um, uh, rare configuration in the system, normally the star would be so bright that it would outshine anything that it was reflecting off of. But in, because of um, the, the configuration, you know, because it's, uh, it's a nearly an edge-on view, for example, and then from this perspective, the disk exactly blocks out the, the sun, and then we could see the reflected light off of the, this cloud or disk of, of sand-like material. Uh, this, so this is probably a, a proto-solar system, and, and eventually these grains of sand will collapse into pebbles and then boulders and then whole planets, eventually. I can't wait. Can't wait, <laughs> yep. Um, so it's just because they, we happen to be right at John, you know, they were able to see this. So, but it's the first time they actually were able to do that. Um, and now that we know that we, can, that we can actually visualize this disk, this just opens the door, as they say, to all kinds of observations of this system. So they can start asking questions about, you know, what the nature of this material is, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, the next one... Scientists have discovered that within the Earth's inner core is yet another layer, or an inner inner core. And this one is science. Oh, wow, so what's yes. the nature of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was hoping that to get... Bob, I almost yeah. got you on the... I thought I would have heard this before. Yep. Almost got me. I almost got you on that one. That's what I was hoping to go for with this. But it's not that you know unlikely in and of itself. It's just... Yeah, it does seem like the kind of thing that you would have picked. Yeah, and I but, saw nothing on anything like that. So what's the deal? Yeah, it's a pretty recent, pretty recent item, so I was hoping to catch it before you guys did. Yeah, so with the, this is looking at, Jay, you're actually right. It is seismic evidence that they were using. It's, uh, well, that's, yeah, that's... Looking at, looking at uh, earthquakes. You know, of course, they have to wait for earthquakes to happen, but, you know, we have the whole world. Around the whole world, there are enough And Rebecca chuckled at and, me. Remember, guys? I was probably chuckling about yeah. something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> about, the bug you. You, about the bug you squished. Oh, yeah. No, I'll never laugh about that. Sorry, go on. <laughs> It was a bug? It wasn't like a daddy long legs or something? (laughs) It wasn't a spider. (laughs) No, it was definitely a little bug next to my computer during the podcast. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Yeah, so um, the the, the Earth's core uh, consists of an inner core and an outer core. The inner core is solid iron, and the outer core is a fluid that's about 7,000 kilometers in diameter. A fluid? Yep, the inner core is about 2,400 kilometers. In What's diameter. the fluid? Pus. Oh, please say beer. Please say beer. Please, please say, say magma. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> say, say magma. Hot I mean, it's, magma. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's molten. It's molten I'm stuff. molting. Sorry. <laughs> With a solid inner core. But now they, what they found was that that solid inner core actually has two layers. So it has an inner core and then an innermost or inner inner core. And it's probably just different types of iron crystals that have layered out. One of the researchers, uh, Dr. Sun, said, to constrain the shape of the inner core anisotropy, we need a uniform distribution of seismic waves traveling in all directions through the core. So that's what they were able to gather enough information about uh, recording seismic waves from earthquakes. Cool. To, to get that information. And they, and they found that it was actually layering out into these two, these two layers. The inner inner core may be composed of a different phase of crystalline iron cool. or have a different pattern of alignment, Sun said. Interesting. Huh. All of this means that 
Contrary to the theory of violent dwarfism, paleontologists have uncovered on the island of Micronesia fossils of prehistoric humans averaging over six feet tall. Is fiction. It's a damn dirty uh, lie. Yay! Good fiction. Clean sweep. You guys, did you guys hear the real no. story? Uh-uh. More dwarfs, right? It wasn't an yeah, island? Yeah, it's actually yeah. more, more hobbit sized people. Ah. And it was funny, this struck me as funny that it was Micronesia. Uh, but they <laughs> did discover fossil remains of short statured human like fossils from 1400 to 3000 years ago that they think are very similar to the prior specimens that were found on uh, Indonesia, on the island of Flores. And the, the debate has been raging about whether or not these are just short people. Homo sapiens, or is it really another species, Homo floresiensis? The specimens now found on Micronesia are very similar to the ones on Indonesia, so they may have been part of a of a one population. Steve, could they have been Homo migitolas? <laughs> <laughs> Steve, wasn't there a recent news item with a lot of scientists seem to be agreeing that it's that it wasn't a different species. It was uh, t- humans with uh, some genetic disorder. Yeah, it's been it's gone back and forth, um, and that's the two competing uh, theories. You know, we talked about this before, in fact, about looking at the brain case uh, and yeah. seeing if is it um, yeah is, is was this uh, humans with microcephaly or was it uh, again a different species? And maybe although their brains were smaller, they might have been more optimally organized so that they would still have like a human level or even more intelligence, even though the, the, the volume of the brain was smaller. But that, that has not been definitively resolved as of yet, and they're, they're hoping to find more specimens you know, to help them answer. Well, I could have sworn I saw an article like very recent, like within the past few days about that specific topic. I was wondering if there was just another update to that specific piece of this debate, but um, maybe not. Uh, well, the, uh, you may be referring to these uh, fossils because these do have features that are um, considered "quote unquote" unique to Homo sapiens. So, this these additional specimens, if they're the same as the Flores Island specimens, may push us more back in the direction of just a, a small population of Homo sapiens rather than a separate species. They do the article discussing this does mention the phenomenon known as island dwarfism. And if you remember, it was a previous science fiction item that called that into question. That that further analysis showed that animals tend to change in size when they adapt to an island, but they're just as likely to become bigger as to become smaller. They don't necessarily always become smaller. Um, so the, the concept of island dwarfism is, is in question itself. So good job, everyone. Thanks. Well done. Thanks. You're really sucking wind this year, Go Steve. Us. I know. Yeah. I just can't get you guys. <laughs> We're too good. You need to come up with some new strategy or something. Well, good luck. Oh. Four choices. Had, had you guys read Don't any of those? Or you just, nope. You just I didn't see any of these. Figuring it. I, honestly, I, did. I didn't read any of them either. I just... Bob, you read oh, it? The first one. I read the first one about the, the sand. The yeah. Other, the other yeah. two I didn't. I read the midget yeah, thing, so I didn't dumb. have to read the other two. Yeah, right. <laughs> My spirit guide told me which one to choose, so I went with that. <laughs> That's always a good, good strategy. <laughs> Good old Tonto. He never lets me down. <laughs> Tonto. Tonto. Yeah, well. Jay. Yes, sir. Do you have a quote for us this week? I did find a quote. Uh, it took a while to find a good one. I read a ton and I uh, found a, a little interesting quote by a ancient man named Thucydides. Is that pronounced correctly? No. Not even no. close. 
Stussy Dites? Stussy Dites. Is that like Upsy Daisies? And Little Angie Ivy? Thucydides. Try Thucydides. Say again. Thucydides. Awesome. Where's it written? Let me see it written. Where is it? Just Thucydides. 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 I can't wait to read the emails we get. You're gonna. You're editing that out. Oh no, no that's too that's, good. I'll go in. <laughs> What's sad Good. is I tried to look up the pronunciation of the guy's name. I couldn't find it anywhere. So you took a guess, and and your guess is wrong. Well, swung and missed. Oh. Remember, when in doubt, with especially with Greek names, yeah. when in doubt, put the accent on the semi-penultimate syllable. Oh, don't even start throwing out words. Yeah, like Jay, everybody took. I love it. Yeah, although somebody tried to correct me on that and say it was the. Well, yeah, that's not, not correct. Ant- anti-penultimate. Anti-penultimate or something? Yeah. yeah. But both are correct. Yeah. This is being pedantic. Okay, so anyway... And that's pedantic. Anyway, go ahead, Jay. So, so Thucydides was a, uh, an ancient Greek historian. <laughs> he, wrote a, he wrote a book called The History of Peloponnesian War. The History of the Peloponnesian War. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said... Yes, he did. When a man finds a conclusion agreeable, he accepts it without argument. When he finds it disagreeable, he will bring against it all the forces of logic and reason. Thucydides! (laughs) 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 And I will pronounce his name like that for the rest of my life. Right. I want to hear more from this guy in the future. I'll have to read that book. I really like the quote, though. I thought it was... Uh, it's a good it quote. It just says it, you know? It's true. It is a good quote. I mean, we as skeptics, we all do that, well, too. You know, like, we we try to unlearn the gut reaction of just agreeing with what's agreeable to you. You have to, you know, we have to question everything. No, I mean, that's that's how the human brain works. You know, we, we make our decisions based upon emotional subconscious criteria, and then we rationalize what we want to believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's the what we call the default mode of of human neurological function, and you have to almost consciously override it. Yeah, you know? we train ourselves to to go against that instinct. Thucydides yeah. surely was a great man. To be conscious of that at all moments of your life, it's like nearly impossible. It takes discipline, you know. Discipline. That's, that's, what, the, that's what skepticism is largely about. Otherwise, you know, and it's true. You could use the forces of logic and reason to support a conclusion that you predetermined that you want to be true for completely ideological or emotional or whatever reasons. It's most of what our frontal lobe does is rationalize the decisions that are made by the more primitive parts of our brain. Steve, I kind of look at it like I, I've kind of tried to become emotionally detached from you know what I believe, in a way. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And so my strategy has been what I advocate, and this is science, this is skepticism, is to attach yourself to the process, not the conclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Is to say that the process has to be valid, has to be scientific, has to be legitimate, whatever the conclusion is. And I'm not emotionally invested in the conclusion, just that the process works. And it leads wherever it leads. And that means if new information comes down the pike, or if someone shows you know, that, the log- that a different logic is more appropriate, then I'll happily change the conclusion because I have no attachment to the conclusion. It's just that I have to get the process right. And that's, again, that is sort of science in a nutshell. Science is a process. It's about the process. It's not about the conclusion. Pseudoscience begins with the conclusion. And then they then Yeah, and they warp the everything to continue to match yeah. their conclusion. Everything, right. To- and it could seem exactly. very logical and very reasonable. 
you know. And without naming names, we've talked to people on this show that have literally rewritten every single science known to man to to follow their conclusions. That's how extreme it can get. Right. Absolutely. Sure does. We don't really have to name names. There's only been like six of them. <laughs> you know, it is time. It it's time for a new true believer. We got to get uh, we got to get a heavy hitter true believer on the show. Ugh. We do, we do. We've well, been we trying. have some calls out to some. Yeah, we, we have, have some calls out to some people. We, we won't drop any names, but we we do have some calls out to some very interesting. <laughs> we are people. trying to line up our our next quote unquote hostile interview <laughs> or true believer interview. Uh, we'll see if any of it comes to fruition, but it's tough. Well, next time we do it, Steve, you could be straight and nice, and I'm going to go for the throat. We'll do the, you'll, you'll be the bad cop to my yeah. good cop. Bad skeptic. Good skeptic, bad skeptic. skeptic. Yeah, we have to in, invent a new routine. Routine. Good skeptic, bad skeptic. <laughs> um, hey, speaking of skepticism, I have a small announcement to make. Um, people in Colorado, you should get yourselves to Skeptic Camp coming up on Saturday, March 22nd. I want to give them a plug because they're doing a really cool thing. It's basically a grassroots skeptical conference where... Um, you just show up and you can volunteer to give a talk or to help put on the the event. And it's very cool. And they're trying to help other groups do it around the country. Um, this is their second annual Skeptic Camp. And it doesn't involve camping, unlike what the name might suggest. So mm-hmm. we'll include a link to that on the notes page. Or you can go to Skeptic and check it out on our calendar. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. If any other uh, skeptics out there have events that are happening, send us an email because we'll happily announce them on the show to make sure we get the word out. I'd like to quickly thank um, anyone who voted on DIG. We did make the second page of all the podcasts on DIG. Very cool. Number two. We took over French made TV. Yeah, we did. That's right, Evan. Knocked them out of the way. (laughs) We beat French made TV. Take that, Frenchies. God, I wonder how does that speak for our show? I mean, how good is that show? I guess I should listen to it. Well, <laughs> it's it's actually pretty good. French made TV. Yeah, I guess, what's it like? I mean, what do they do? They sit around and smack each other it's with the dust. What do they la. need to do? They're dressed as French maids. And they say, oui, oui monsieur. It's effing la. La. That's awesome. Anyway, page two. Yay. Thanks. So what's our next goal, guys? Thanks, everybody. Page one. We're not, I, I honestly would believe, won't believe we'll ever make it to page one. Like, we need, like... Th- never say sure never. What kind of we'll attitude that. is that? I'm not, not... Come on. I'm a skeptic. I'm, it's reality-based. That's being here. cynical, not skeptical. Well, we've only probably been on dig about two years or so, and we made it this far. And if we double our number, we'll make okay, it to the first. Right. Okay, look, so let's all dress up as French maids for the next podcast. <laughs> okay, I okay, think that could help. It'll double our numbers. Okay, don't you yeah. always? You do it first. You guys go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sight gags are great for audio shows. <laughs> Also, <laughs> hey guys, look at this. We've got to remind everyone. You know, like most of you know, of course, Tam Six is coming up. There's going to be tons of uh, partying. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a dinner, a Skeptics Guide uh, dinner like last year, probably on Friday night, uh, that anybody is welcome to come to. And we had an awesome time last yeah, so year. So actually, uh, very soon, we will make a full announcement about all of the activity that's happening at TAM6. But Jay's right. We yeah. are planning a dinner probably Friday night. But and again, we'll have a final uh, time and date soon. You know, I'll be lecturing at TAM6. We're also going to be having... Um, other events with the SGU at TAM six, but again, we're, we're going to finalize this in the, in the coming weeks, and then and when, once we do, we will make full announcement both on our website and on the podcast. So just keep an eye out for that. And now is a good time. Now is a good time to go to the JREF website 
and to uh, to sign up. A, a listener mm-hmm. wrote in, and um, he, he was saying about how his girlfriend and he would love to meet us or, and uh, didn't know how available we, we would be. And the fact is, you know, we're there for the whole event. We're very available. I mean, we're going to be hanging yeah. out, doing a lot of interviews and stuff, but there's a lot of time that we have to go out with people, to you know, to talk to people. We're going to be at the whole thing. So, Yeah, we are there for our listeners. We, we will be as accessible as we can be. I mean, obviously, we'll be doing interviews and we'll be doing stuff as well, but we will definitely be making as much time as we can for our listeners. So come, have drinks. We're going to have a great time. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining me once again. Thank you, Thanks, Steve. Steve. Early. Always an exciting time. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Yeah.